Okay, well, we begin this morning, March 25th, our 22nd lesson from Matthew. Has anybody stopped to do the math here? We started in, we started October the 8th. Hey, man, come in. We started October the 8th, so uh, I think we're on the four-year plan right now. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> because, you know, we have, ver- <clears throat> we have passages of Scripture like we're getting into here at the end of the fourth chapter where... The disciples are being called, and it's just such a good opportunity to go back and <coughs> look at a little bit of a character analysis uh, on these disciples, particularly the first four. And as I mentioned last week when we talked about Peter, you got these groups of four, and you know you see Peter at the top, and there's so much we can go back and look at that tells us a good bit, not always a great deal, but some interesting things about their personality and so forth. I think that's just totally valid because we have exactly what the Holy Spirit has for us to, to look at. Not, not a whole lot of things that we don't need, <clears throat> but it's interesting uh, to see uh, just uh, how these folks were put together, how God you know, blessed them or gave them certain talents, if you will. We all have our own individual personality traits and characteristics. That is of God. And then to see what happens when the Holy Spirit takes charge of a person. And we see that clearly with the disciples because they had a wealth of knowledge. Now, there's some other things going on there, too, because, you know, they were prohibited from fully understanding everything about the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus until that time. Uh, But we also see uh, elements of their personality being demonstrated and we see those same characteristics those same qualities if you will and sometimes deficiencies some liabilities we see them resurrect and uh, after the resurrection I should say Uh, but they're still there we are what we are God can make us over and use us he certainly does the power of the Holy Spirit within a person who's born again changes everything and it takes Literally, God's handiwork and what the way that He's made us and just empowers it. You know, it is, as it says, the dunamis, that spirit in us. So that's a wonderful thing. And we see evidence of that as we look at Peter and Andrew and James and John and these guys who are going forth. I, I find it interesting, too, to try and get as much in my mind about their day and time, the way that they lived, what their life was like the demands upon their life, the uncertainties in their life, the, the political upheaval that was going on uh, in and around them with the Roman occupation and everything, to get a feel of what was going on and to get an idea of what it meant to stand for Christ, to come out and say, I'm following Jesus. I'm following Yahshua, Yahshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, as they would say. And what that cost them. And what the difficulties were in coming forth like that. So, we looked at Peter last week. We learned some things about him. And I'm sure over the years you've had occasion to do that. And, uh, and I, like I say, I shared with you, uh, much of my information comes from 12 Ordinary Men. If you've not read that book, I uh, suggest you read it. Because not just to... Uh, get a really firm uh, character detail on the apostles, but to see what it says about you. 
and about the traits that you have. I'm sure you have some that are similar to Peter's and to John's, even especially John's. We're gonna, if we get to John, I had like 27 different items on John time I got through looking at him. But uh, at any rate, it's interesting, and it's there for us to study and to understand. So God can speak to us through that, and I pray that He will. Well, we look this morning then, we'll leave Peter and we'll look at Andrew. Okay, we'll look at him, of course, Peter's brother. We can say without a doubt that he is in that group of four. He's the least known of the four disciples in that lead group. You know, you got Peter and Andrew and James and John. And a lot of times you see just an intimate three. You know, we'll look at that in just a moment, how Jesus calls them even out of that group for special privilege, special duty, and so forth. He was not included um, in several of the important events. He wasn't. He was left out. When you look at the transfiguration, um, just what was it? Uh, Peter, James, and John. That, that intimate circle that is often referred to when uh, Jesus went to Jairus' daughter and literally brought her back from the dead. You know, He wasn't there. Um, Christ in Gethsemane, same same thing. He addresses that intimate group. And it's interesting because Andrew is the older. And there might be something going on there. You know, it'd be speculation, I guess, but we know human nature. You know, he was the one <coughs> that brought Peter, right? He was the one that brought Peter. He brings others. So he goes and brings his, I don't know, overzealous, you know, Maybe somewhat brash and egotistical brother, okay, <laughs> to Jesus. And that's kind of the way that went down. But you do see evidence that he is a very eager person, okay? He's, he is zealous. And they were looking for Messiah. They were looking for him. You know, they were back meeting with and part of the ministry with John the Baptist and were hungry for truth. So they were where they were supposed to be because they were looking for it. They were ready for it. Their ears were open. And then, of course, with John the Baptist there, they were eventually you know, encouraged to move out of that ministry when John the Baptist stands forth and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what do you think they thought? I mean, regarding their own involvement in ministry, well, am I going to am I going to stay here or am I going to follow <laughs> this one? Okay, and they did. They followed Christ. Okay, they were attentive to what was going on. Had their fishing business. They were uh, successful in that. And uh, Andrew and Peter uh, just continued on in their search. And this this covered a period of time. As you'll recall, and we'll look at it in a moment, there are really like five different callings, five different times when Jesus issued a call to these men in some fashion. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But as I said last week, we get the picture sometimes that they're just out there fishing and then here comes Jesus and He says, follow me, and they get up and go. And it wasn't like that. Okay, They had some experience with Him, had met Him, had heard Him. Uh, had followed him as when they were, <clears throat> or uh, when they were with John the Baptist, had left for a while, or just really didn't get going, you know, in that direction. But there came a point 
where they were called to permanent ministry, called a permanent ministry. Uh, the four leaders, Andrew is the least conspicuous. He's there and you see him, but it's almost like he's behind the scenes doing things. And I guess he's, you know, satisfied with that. I mean, there's no, uh, no real evidence that he wasn't, but it didn't discourage him. In other words, he didn't have to have, you know, the, the front seat. He didn't have to be up front to stay faithful and to do what he needed to do for the, for the cause of Christ. He didn't really seek the center of attention. We don't have any evidence of that. He's always seen in a good light except when following others. And he gets in trouble sometimes when he goes along with the crowd. Yeah, and we'll see that. Andrew saw the value of individuals, you know, seemingly insignificant gifts, inconspicuous service. He learned, I think, he learned humility very early on. And he believed in the power of God to change a person, right? You know, Christ can change anyone. Have you ever been in that dilemma? Have you ever been tempted? Have you ever just been kind of weary with someone who will not believe the truth, though it's laid out in front of them time and time again? I mean, such is the power of evil. It is a very dominant, dominant force. And we know that nothing is going to happen in a person's life until the power of the Word of God and until the Holy Spirit of God works in that person. And we can do all that we possibly can do. But I believe Andrew believed that anybody could be changed. Anybody could be changed. So he goes and uh, he follows Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 19, you see that verse where he and Peter says, and he said to them, talking about Christ, Christ said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now this would be very, very challenging. Very, very challenging. Because here, Jesus in just a nutshell discloses exactly what it is to follow Him. It's not to, you know, sit around, sit, sit down by the, the Sea of Galilee and, and listen and be fed and, and, you know, have notoriety and all of these things. There's a power that must come over us. The power of the Holy Spirit must empower us to be a difference in the lives of people. And the way we're different is by living out and speaking out the Word of God through the Spirit of God. And this is what He's calling them to do. And He's saying, if you will follow Me, if you will keep your eyes upon Me, you'll be able to do that. I'll show you. I will make you fishers of men. That's, a, that's an encouraging thought to me. Christ doesn't say, I'll give you an opportunity to, to kind of get on board here and, you know, we'll see how it... No, Christ is responsible for that. So rest assured with all of us, whatever our skills and abilities are or are not, it's Christ that makes the difference. If you're going to be an influence in someone's life, if you're going to have a ministry, if you're going to, to be able to, to find your place in the church of God for service, that's going to be the work of Christ. And can we agree this morning that that's what it's all about? I don't, I don't care if you work in the, in the nursery or if you prepare this building or if you preach or teach or whatever you do. Ultimately, 
And I pray this will always be how we evaluate our efforts. Ultimately, it's about being fishers of men and women. It's about providing people an opportunity to hear the gospel, to be saved, and to have their lives eternally changed because of that power. Do you agree with that this morning? That's very important for us to remember that it's Christ who does that work. What He literally said, and follow me, I understand, He says, come here after me. Come here after me. In other words, Christ must be our focus. He must be our goal. Our whole thing is to be Christ-like on this side of salvation. And out of that flows the right kind of service. Out of that, we get the assurity that we're where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, the way that we're supposed to be doing it. And Christ, and Christ alone, is receiving honor and glory for that. So I mention these callings as I understand them. And you can make reference, of course, to the call to salvation, which we see in, in actually in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. After that, and I won't read that whole passage there, but if you go and read that, it says plainly at the end there, it says that those disciples whom He called believed in Him. They believed in Him. They heard the Word of God. And it wasn't just the, the miracles. Okay, It wasn't that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit which convicts us, convinces us of our sin, and draws us to Christ. And we turn to Him in faith and repentance. What we're looking at in uh, Matthew 4.19 here is referred to as this second calling, which is a call to witness. It's what I just read. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. How long after <clears throat> your salvation was it before God began to challenge you with being a witness for Him? Was, can you identify a part of that experience that was just a natural overflow? Excuse me. A natural overflow. It's what you naturally wanted to do. When I say naturally, I mean in terms of your new nature. You want to share that because you're convinced and it's experiential. It's not just something intellectual that you all of a sudden aspire to. You have experienced the grace of God. You've experienced the forgiveness of God. You've experienced your sin burden lifted, as you know I like to say. You've experienced that. It's a very real thing with you. Why would you not share that? Why would you not share that? A call to witness and to get a greater vision about how God can use our life, our life of witness. So a call to salvation, a call to witness, and then we make reference to a call of permanency. And you might say a call of greater resolve, greater dedication, having a desire to bring your life forward. You know, there's still a process going on, right, with our sanctification. We mention it often. Having that desire, Lord, I don't want to live a mediocre Christian life. I want you to have your way in my life. And I want to see things happen for your honor and glory because of your power, not because of my, you know, manipulation or perceived skills and abilities. But what are you doing through my life? Fourthly, a call to preach, which involves a preparation here from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. I put a note here to read that, and I didn't turn to it. Let me turn quickly. Matthew, Mark, that's in the New Testament, isn't it? Matthew, Mark. 
Yeah, Mark 13 <clears throat> through 15 here. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he also wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So we see Christ calling them for a time of preparation. And then lastly, you talk about this fifth calling, which is indeed a call to to preach. It's the fulfillment of what we just read in Mark chapter 3 where they actually get their commission, and it says that they were given authority. Okay, they're ready to go. They're trained up. They're full of the Spirit of God, and they're sent out. So I'd say to you today, this morning, that Christians will experience several types of calls after their salvation. Can you point back in your life since salvation to any particular call from God, uh, another point in your life, apart from your salvation experience, where it was clear that God was there, He was present, He was opening up a door. Most often, it's an opportunity for service. It might be an opportunity specifically in someone's life. You talk about, as Dan shared, about uh, something like adoption. I mean, like I say, that is a huge commitment. I'd see that as a call. A call to, to be that, that parent and to provide for those kids. It's a wonderful thing. And we stay close to God and we listen to His voice because I can guarantee you when you do that, He'll make your plate full. He'll answer that. If you're genuine, if you're sincere, if you're ready, you make yourself available for service, God will provide that opportunity. That's the way it works. He does all of that. He will make us fishers of men. He will do that work. And what we have to do is yield unto Him. That's one of the great privileges of being involved in the local New Testament church. You won't find a fuller life anywhere. You won't find it anywhere. You won't find a life that's more meaningful Even in the difficult times, you can see the hand of God. God's Word will guide us through that. We will see His hand at work. That's what it's about. So I pray that that is our desire, and I pray that we can see that clearly. As long as we're convinced that it's His work, that He's doing that, and we have to make ourselves available, makes makes it possible certainly makes it worthwhile. And we know that we're assured of His success. So that's what we're called to do. That's why these are being called. You know, you know I, I ran across this, um, this little story here. I had seen this years ago, <clears throat> and I, I saw it in one of the commentaries I was looking at. And you may be familiar with it. I'll just ask you, are you familiar with this story called The Seacoast? Sometimes it's called the Seacoast Epistle. Have you ever heard of that? I'm going to read it to you this morning. It's just a page, just a little over a page, but it's, uh, it's uh, to the point. And it comes to bear on our um, desires, our faithfulness within the church of God. Listen to this. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. 
The building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so that it became famous. And some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and to give of their time, to give of their money and effort for the support of its work. So new boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. With me so far? Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, decorated and furnished exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. And fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room uh, where, the, where the club initiations were held. <clears throat> About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. And they were dirty and sick, and some of them had black, uh, black skin, some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a, sh- a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. And at the next meeting, there was a split in the club members. Most of them wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the social life of the club. And some insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to have the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in the waters, wanted to save their lives rather, that they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. And as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. And as history continued to repeat itself, if you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Now, I think that's to the point. (laughs) It's certainly not Scripture. But I tell you what, it's accurate. It's accurate. And this is what happens. This is the subtlety of the effort, if you will, to destroy the influence of the church. What does this have to do with what I read? It's Christ and Christ alone who will make us fishers of men. I'd like to add too that he says that he will build his church. You realize that's really not our task? Our task is to be faithful and obedient. Our task is to put everything in our life under his leadership, under his lordship, and he will do the rest of the work. That's what he's called us to do. He will do that. We can't lose that focus Because it doesn't take very long to see the power and influence of a church erode. Why? Because we get our eyes off of who's doing the providing. We literally do. Matthew 4.20 
Matthew 4, 20. Immediately they left their nets. Peter and Andrew did. They left their nets and they followed Him. There was a level of commitment there, was there not? There was a letter, a level rather of conviction. And you'll find that conviction brings a sense of urgency. A true conviction, a true commitment within a person's heart will oftentimes bring this level of emergency, if you will, or immediacy. In other words, we want to get going. We're finally directed. We're, we're bought in, if you want to say it that way. And we're eager for God to use us. We see that example with Peter and Andrew. What did it mean for them to leave those nets? You know, those nets required a lot of attention. A lot of attention. They spent a lot of time detangling those things and keeping them uh, fixed just right or else it would foil their catch. It was their livelihood. They were able to get up and to walk away from that. Conviction moves us to action. When we're truly convicted, when we're truly committed, we'll do something. When it's truly important to us, we'll make the time. We'll find the funds. We'll do what we have to do. We'll prepare ourselves. And you see this happening in the lives of these two. It calls for new priorities, does it not? Because their nets and their livelihood and all that was there for them all of a sudden wasn't the number one thing in their life. Okay, now look, these people had to work, right? They had to work just like we do, particularly in, a, in an agrarian community. And here they are, a little on the other end of it, in that they're, they're fishermen, businessmen. That's a big deal. That's a big step. So they left those nets. And then lastly, their conviction, their commitment resulted in new goals. And their goal was Christ first and foremost, and then service to Him. Is this not what we're about? Is this not what He's called us to? And we see this example with them right here. We don't have a whole lot of other information, but we do have this. So, He's called Peter, Simon. I'm going to rename him Peter. He's called his brother. And now He moves on in uh, verse 21 of chapter 4. It says, Going from there, that there He saw two other brothers, James and John, or James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. They were in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, just like we said. And He called them. He called them. So now we're going to focus upon James just a little bit. Of the three in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, again, he's the least familiar in the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. He's always mentioned with others everywhere in Scripture except one time. There's one time when he's mentioned by himself, and I'll, I'll save that for you. We'll save that till we get to the end here. James was older uh, than his brother John. His father Zebedee was a well-to-do guy. There's every evidence of that in one place. What is it? Did I mark it? Yeah, Mark 1.20. It talks about the servants that they had, the hired servants that worked with them in their shipping business. There's some historical references and data about this man that I won't go into uh, sometimes we bring that in. I'll bring some in on John. Uh, uh, but if that's accurate, he was a notable person, had some, um, I guess you could call them political 
uh, connections even through the priesthood and so forth there, Zebedee. So there's evidence that he was a notable guy, an upstanding uh, business guy. So perhaps this would have made it even harder for them uh, to leave, if you will, whatever that meant in their day, the comfort of the life that they had. They worked. Uh, but you see him, you know, they're, they're always involved. You know, he's got this thing going on with the disciples. And it happens a couple of times where they're arguing about who is the greatest. Okay, James was part of uh, that discussion. Luke 22, verse 24 there. And you know, he's going to be the very first, the very first apostle to be martyred. That's going to be James. He's the only apostle whose martyrdom is recorded in the Scripture. He's the only one. James was handpicked by Jesus along with Peter and John on three occasions, and I mentioned those to you earlier uh, regarding Jairus' daughter and the Mount of Transfiguration and, and in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was allowed to witness the power of Christ. He saw that firsthand. He saw the glory of Christ. He saw the sovereignty of Christ. He was there when Christ in His humanity, when the Son of Man was agonizing. He saw that and was witness to that. I mean, think of those things right there. The things that He was involved in, they had to have an impact on preparing Him for His martyrdom. Had to. He was sure of what He believed and we have that recorded in Scripture. Jesus nicknamed James and John, as you know. How is that pronounced? Boanerges? Is that how you pronounce it? B-O-A-N-E-R-G-E-S? That's what it says in the Scripture. And it means sons of thunder. And that tells us a lot. I mean, if we only had that in looking at James and John, we would understand just how uh, much of a zealous person he was. Obviously, when you hear that description, you know, so he's a... He's a thunderous guy. He's a, he's a move forward and take charge kind of guy along with his brother. And there'll be some overlap here as we look at John later because they're very, very similar. So many times brothers like that are opposites. And these seem to be a duo, okay? A double barrel, if you will. And this is how they're described. And that's interesting. When Jesus was dishonored, if you remember, in a certain Samaritan village. You read about it in Luke 9, 54. You remember it was James and John who said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just obliterate these people? And he was probably thinking because of the geographical area they were in about way on back with Elijah and fire coming down and all that. But that was their attitude. That was the way they thought. That's the way he thought. It reminds us once again that Jesus had within his hands there some wet clay with these guys, all right? Did they have notable characteristics? Yes. Did they have things, if you will, about their personality and character that given uh, the right motivation, the right temperament, okay, would they be able to use that? Would it be used for the honor of God? Yes. That's encouraging, is it not? God does the same thing with us. We're no different. We're no different. But that's what they wanted to do there. And that indicates it's, it's, it's telling that their heart wasn't quite right. They had a lot of courage. They would speak. They would stand forth. They would do that. But where was the love? <laughs> where was the compassion? You know, This is what you have to have. 
That guides everything. James was ambitious, but he was overconfident. You know, they went to their mother, Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, and had her approach Jesus and ask Jesus if in his kingdom, when he's finally in his realized kingdom, would he be so good as to allow James and John to sit on his left and right hand, okay? So how far along are they in their understanding? You know, I tell you, Jesus had a lot to work with. He had a lot to do, did He not? He confirmed that both James and John with this experience here, this, this request, He confirmed that they would indeed share in the baptism that He Himself, Christ, was to be baptized with. Do you remember how that went without going back and reading it? When they made that, He said, you don't know what you're asking. You don't have any idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And you know what they said? We are. Had no idea. And Christ said, well, you know, you are. It's coming. It's coming. And it did come. And even though, you know, it was different uh, for John, it was still horrific for John. And we'll talk about that when we get to him. Because he wasn't martyred. So that's what he has, you know. The early church historian Eusebius found this quote, passes on an account that's a matter of history from Clement of Alexander. Says, Clement says that the one who led James to the judgment seat when James was to be beheaded, said when he saw him bearing his testimony, he was moved and confessed that he was himself a Christian. You got the picture? The guy who's taking him to be beheaded is listening to his testimony as he goes and becomes convicted because he says that he himself was a Christian. Now, this is a historical account from Clement of Alexander. They were both, therefore, he says, led away together. And on the way, he begged James to forgive him for his role in taking him to be beheaded. And James, he says, after considering a little, said, Peace be with thee, and he kissed him. And it says, and thus they were both beheaded at the same time. That's history. That's history. But we see evidence of James's courage in what we're looking at here. It would appear that he, toward the end of his life, was finally able to understand passion and to understand love and to bring all that together to allow uh, himself, his own temperament, you know, to be brought under control by the Spirit of God. And it all has to do with the sen- being sensitive to the grace of God. This was Him. This was Him. And God did this work in His life. Well, you got Peter and Andrew. You got James. And now you've got John. I think I can get through John. I'll try. Interesting fella. Interesting most often because the... Historical accounts and so much of, I guess you could say, the, the art, particularly the medieval art about John pictures him in a certain way. If you go to probably Leonardo, was it Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, wasn't it? Isn't that right? And where, where do you see John? 
You know, can you recall? I mentioned that one because that's the most prevalent one. He's the one over there, like it says, leaning on Jesus' breast, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the picture that we have of him. I mean, the gospel. His gospel is what? The gospel of love. That's what we call it. He's the disciple of love. The younger brother of James, writer of the gospel, writer of the three epistles that bear his name. Of course, the revelation. Always listed in the first group of four apostles. He's definitely one of the leaders. He's also in the inner circle. We know that. He's the companion of Peter in the first 12 chapters of Acts. He's right there with Peter. John outlived all the other apostles. And of course, he's named uh, along with his brother as one of the sons of thunder that we discussed. His temperament is pretty much the same. They both wanted to call down the fire in Samaria there. John was part of the request to, to sit at Jesus' left or right hand. We discussed that. He's there. And he's known as this apostle of love, though. But that's not always the way it was. And we can tell that from Scripture. We can see that. And I do find some of the historical accounts about John that have survived to be interesting, mostly because they support what we see in Scripture about him. You know, he's also the guy who said, you know, we went out and we saw a guy preaching and teaching, and he wasn't one of us, so we stopped him. We made him stop what he was doing. Christ will address that later. We'll look at that. So that's the apostle of love. But he didn't start out that way. Not at all. He was zealous. He was ambitious. He was intolerant. He was explosive. You might say he was a lot like Peter, I think. Here's a quote from MacArthur I like. He says, If you imagine that John was the way he was, often portrayed in the medieval art, a meek, mild, pale-skinned, effeminate person lying around on Jesus' shoulder, looking up at him with a dove-eyed stare, he said, you need to forget that caricature because that's not what the Scripture says about him and that's not the way he's presented, particularly, specifically, not in his early days. And then there's some other historical information that has survived about John. One's from Polycarp, says that John, the disciple of the Lord, going to a bath uh, in Ephesus, you remember he was pastor of the church at Ephesus, and perceiving that the heretic Serenthus was within, rushed out of the bathhouse, now this is John, without bathing, exclaiming, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. And if that's an accurate account, falls right in line with his personality as we see in Scripture. There's one more. Clement of Alexandria relates how John fearlessly entered the camp of a band of robbers and led its captain, who had once professed faith in Christ, to true repentance. That was John. Dash in. As we say oftentimes with, when police officers run into a situation that they're not familiar with, they got a little bit of training and a big gun, we call it jumping on hell with a water pistol. That's what we call it. While they might have the characteristics and their intentions might be good, and they might even have all the, the tools it would seem to do it, you, you can't be rightly motivated if you're not tempered. Correctly, Only the Holy Spirit can do that in the life of a person. He must do that work. He, again I say it, will make us fishers of men and women. John appears and speaks in Scripture by himself only once. Only once. 
He's complaining about someone preaching what I just shared with you there from Mark 9.38. Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us. A little bit of a sectarian, wouldn't you say? A little bit you know, on the exclusive side. A little overprotective. Jesus said, let him alone. He's not for us. Or if he's not against us, he's for us. He said to display other characteristics and temperaments, you know, being narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, impetuous, volatile, brash, overly aggressive. But the Holy Spirit's control changed John. And it changed his character traits, these liabilities that seem, changed them into assets. There's a time to be bold, right? There's a time to stand forth. But it's never centered in who we are. Ever. It's centered in who Christ is within us. We stand upon the truth. And the truth will stand. He's an example of growing in Christ. That's what He is. And we see it over this period of time here. It was about three years. We see this transformation in their lives and throughout as we see the results of what the Holy Spirit did to them as they wrote and gave us what we have today, particularly with John, a gospel, three epistles, the revelation. We see the change. He talked about light versus darkness. He was kind of black and white. And when we talk about him, particularly when we look at the epistles and in particularly the first epistle of John, we, we talk about that and we see that. He lays it out there. He don't deal with a lot of the abstracts. He don't deal with the exceptions. Paul does that, thank God, for Paul. You know, you got... For instance, you've got you know, uh, John talking about he that sins is not of God. You sin, you go to hell, period. Oh yeah? There's nothing else? Then you've got Paul talking about in Romans 7 his struggle as a Christian, beginning in verse 14 there. He talks about this dynamic. John doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And There's all kinds of comparisons and contrasts. There's ten of them here. I won't go through them, but light and dark, life and death, kingdom and the devil. So many of them. I've got ten of them here. It's the way he does. It's either this or it's that. Is that not reflective of his personality? There's a lot in between, is there not? And it took him a lifetime. And he lived a long life. A long hard life. But God changed him. He likes to draw these, these clear lines to distinguish and expose the truth. He's concerned with the overall pattern of a person's life. And we see that word, that original Greek word I've shared with you before, that word prasso, okay, that talks about the practice of a person. But he wrote by the Spirit's unction and he laid out, as it were, rules of thumb without a whole lot of explanation from time to time. In his younger years, he was considered to be an extremist. He possessed a lack of a sense of spiritual equilibrium is the way it's put. You know, this is what we strive for. God, let me take, let me surrender what you've given me, <clears throat> the, the skills, abilities that you've given me. Let me surrender those to you that you can change those. You can mold those. As we said, you can temper those. And they will be brought under your control, and when it's all said and done, whatever your service is for Christ, you'll be able to see and say that it was Him that did the work and not you. And he, like his brother, eventually learned what it meant to be humble. 
He too had left John the Baptist to follow this greater truth, this, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because that's truly where He wanted to be. He was all about truth. <clears throat> There's some numbers here on that score because in the, in the Gospel of John, He uses the word truth 25 times. And in His epistles together, He uses it another 20 times. 45 times He makes reference. Same Greek word, the truth. The truth. That's what He wanted. That's what He pursued. And ultimately, that's what He found and became a preacher of. In John's Gospel, He never once mentioned His own name. Never once. He simply, on three occasions or four, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You understand this came later in His life when He's writing. And that's how He saw Himself. A receiver of God's mercy and love. He eventually learned to suffer with Christ. Though he was not martyred, he had a different kind of suffering. Can you imagine all that they went through together? He and his brothers, I mean, even the tragedy of Judas, all that happened. He saw, he lived to see the demise of all of them. And he lived in very hard and difficult circumstances. You know, he was banished to the Isle of Patmos, which is really a big rock. That's all it was. And they bring some slop or whatever and throw it out on the bank and he grabs that and that's his meal. Horrible existence. And this is where he wrote, it didn't stop him. What, what resolve he must have had under those conditions. Now understand, you can go as it's believed today the exact cave where he was and see what kind of life he lived. And he received the revelation of God and he put it down pen and paper. He later became, the, or he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul established that church and we know what happened to the church at Ephesus. Can you imagine that? John preaching and teaching there and eventually that church loses its first love. What does that say about the power of evil? Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the aged Apostle John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into the church. And one phrase was constantly on his lips. My little children, he would say, love one another. No doubt he's known as the disciple of love. Asked why he always said this, he replied, it is the Lord's command. It's the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. Wholly consistent with Scripture. Which is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second one Jesus added without being asked is likened to it. He says you love your neighbor as yourself. And this is Him. This is who He was. So just as Simon Peter and his brother had done Andrew, James and John, it says that immediately, same word, immediately they left their boat. Peter and Andrew left their nets. They leave their boat and, it says, their father. And they throw that in there because as I said earlier, I believe that would have to have been a factor. Hey, we got a good thing going here. (laughs) And we're going to leave it. We're going to walk away from it. And we're going to follow Christ. Is that not the first requirement? is that we desire above all else the person of Christ, that we desire all, of all else 
the truth about Christ in every pursuit that we have. This is the example that we have from these four right here. Not to minimize the example of the others, we just have so much more information. So God help us to yield ourselves to Him. Everything that He's already provided for us, let us yield ourselves to Him. Make sure that it's under His control and see what He will do with our lives. He'll build His church. He'll make us, all of us, fishers, effective fishers of men and women.